Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, good to be back with you guys. You may not have noticed or not, but I was gone last couple weeks. I was uh, two weeks ago up at Reality San Francisco preaching up there. Pastor Dave Lomas is on a sabbatical right now after seven years of serving faithfully in that city. Uh, Reality San Francisco is going wonderfully. God continues to bless that church. It's an absolute miracle that a conservative, Bible-believing, teaching church, Jesus-honoring church in the city of San Francisco is bumping like it is bumping. It's an incredible thing. Um, And so Dave Lomas is on a sabbatical now. I'll be praying for he and his wife, Ashley, as they're taking this time off to get refreshed and renewed and strengthened and juiced up for the next 14 years. Cool? And then, oh, last week I was in Montana with my dad and my son fly fishing. So I was on vacation last week. It's so neat that you applaud that and not preaching in San Francisco. I love you guys. I'll take that anytime. You know what? I I take that to be a sign from God that I need to go fly fishing more often. God has spoken. All right, let's open up in our Bibles now to the book of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Uh, I'll be honest, a little bit of a doozy of a text this morning. Uh, You may glean that from just the title. The title is Jesus on Marriage, Divorce, Remarriage, Singleness, and Kids. Uh, So there's a lot in the text. Uh, I'll say a few things. Number one, I'll just warn you, the sermon is probably slightly longer than usual this morning because it's a rather robust text. So lately I've been preaching for about 42, 45 minutes. It may be just a few minutes longer. So if you, if you can't handle that, that's totally cool, uh, but that's what's going to happen. And then also, we cannot possibly cover everything to be said on these topics, uh, especially divorce and remarriage. Those are pretty big issues within the church. So... Um, you'll have to look for further resources. So I have a couple of recommendations. Number one, we put together a small paper that is sort of a position paper on some of these things that helps us navigate them as a church. Those are available to you today at the Connect Desk. If you have further questions, they will answer some questions that I don't necessarily answer in the sermon today. And then there are many great books on the topic, but here's my number one recommendation. It's by Jay Adams. That's all you need to remember. Google on Amazon, Jay Adams or whatever, and marriage. It's called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible. It's less than 100 pages. It's very succinct, but very helpful. And sometimes these issues around divorce and remarriage within Christian community get rather complex. And this helps sort through a lot of those issues in a very faithful, biblical way. So if you have further questions, we have a few of these available at the book table. You can find them on Amazon, J. Adams, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible. And then as also the staff is here, the pastoral staff, and we also have qualified biblical counselors. If throughout the week you have further questions, you need help on these things, these things should be figured out, parsed out, and lived out in community and with sound spiritual counsel. So we are here for you for those things. How is that for a sermon disclaimer addendum? That was... Heavy duty, we must be in for it. Okay, let's get to the text. Matthew 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 15. I am reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Matthew 19, 1 says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, 
that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his, will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, well, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made that way by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we thank you for your word which we believe to be absolute truth, inerrant and infallible and correct in all that it teaches and asserts. We recognize the authority of your word in the church as the supreme authority in the final word, and we place ourselves under it. We ask that this morning you would give us understanding of your word. We, we, we sense and we understand the tension in the room as all of us somehow are connected to the difficulties present here, represented in the text. And we ask that not only would your truth be clear, but your grace would abound in our midst. Thank you, Jesus, that in you, grace and truth are found. So help us to hear truth and help us in our messy lives to experience grace. Please help me, Lord, to teach and preach in a way that rightly represents your truth and your grace. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a bit of a heavy text this morning, obviously. And as we find the subject matter in the text, I, I know it makes most of us wince and perhaps bristle a little bit at the content that is there because none of us, none of us live lives that are untouched by broken relationships by messy relationships, by the difficulty of family. It's clear in Scripture that God has ideals for marriage and for family, etc. It is clear from our lives that none of us have experienced God's perfect intent and ideal for relationships. We all, in one way or another, are touched by brokenness that comes into our lives through family relationships and broken sexuality, etc., etc. All of us then are in need of God's grace and God's healing. We are also in need of God's truth and understanding. Truth and understanding, grace and healing. 
And as we hear these things, some of us might be tempted to look back at the past, maybe at our parents or others or whatever, and, and kind of be thinking judgment thoughts. But this is not about judging the past. This is about being enlightened by the truth of Scripture for the present, that we might live faithfully and fruitfully in the future. Okay? Grace and truth has come to us in God's Word this morning. And it's really made evident that that's the approach in the first two verses. They seem merely like transition, but they're really, really important in the details. They frame this whole thing. Let's read them again. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So one of the things that's really important is Jesus is leaving Galilee where he lived out most of his life where he's lived out the entirety of his ministry up until this point. And now he's heading south through Judea to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? You know why. What's, what, what lays before him? The cross. Jesus now is on the final leg of the long journey of God's love incarnate in the person of Christ as he is heading toward the cross. He's been preparing his disciples for this journey in this moment. Remember, he said two chapters ago. For the time, for, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to, raised to life. And he mentioned it again in chapter 17. And here now we have that moment where Jesus is headed resolutely toward the cross. And here's why that's important. Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for our sins, our brokenness, our messes, because he loves us. And he loves us in spite of our sins and our brokenness and the messiness and the way that we're all touched by it. And he went to the cross and paid the price for those sins and broke the power of sin and rose from the dead to give us new life to confront and address and redress and renew that sin and that brokenness and that messiness. And so all the messiness that is represented in the rest of the text is framed in this idea that Jesus teaches these things about marriage and divorce and remarriage while he's on his way to the cross. He's not doing it as some professor in an ivory tower. He's not doing it as some cold counselor. He is doing it with the pure love of the cross set before him. Matthew also tells us there in the second verse that great crowds followed him. When Matthew says followed, he doesn't just mean they were present. He means they were following Jesus. Just like we are endeavoring to follow Jesus. That means that these things about divorce and marriage and remarriage and singleness, these things are couched within the idea of being Jesus followers. Relationships is about discipleship. It's about us being disciples of Jesus and endeavoring to follow him. And Matthew also mentioned that Jesus healed the multitudes. What Jesus says next is in the context of Jesus' healing work among people. And you remember in the book of Matthew that all these healings represent something. They represent that the kingdom of God is broken into the world and that the great renewal of all things in Christ has happened. 
And when we see him heal people in the book of Matthew, it is a foretaste, it is a down payment, it is a picture of, it is an explanation and a living metaphor and picture of God's healing work amongst humanity. And so in that idea of following Jesus and the love of the cross and his healing work and the newness of his kingdom, within that framework, Jesus begins to talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage and singleness, etc. So in verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, notice there that the Pharisees are not coming seeking genuine information. It says that they came to test him. And they're trying to see what his position will be. They're bringing up a hot topic of the day. This was like a hotly charged issue in the first century in Israel. And part of, <clears throat> part of the Pharisees' goals here is sort of like political. No matter which way Jesus goes here in answering this question, he's going to offend some of the population. So aren't you glad Jesus isn't a politician because you know how they deal with that. But, but they're setting Jesus up because, again, this was a highly charged debate. So no matter which way Jesus answers to this, he's going to offend some of the people there in Israel. And there were two camps during the time, okay? There was the majority view and the minority view. And the way that these sort of views were expressed or played out in the life of Israel was in the context of rabbinical debates. That is, rabbis would debate these things. And the rabbinical fathers, the older rabbis in the culture, were the ones that sort of held the authority on this. I'm going to mention two rabbis' names in a minute, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. I'll also mention Rabbi Akiba for a moment. They'll represent the different views. But there were two views during the time that the rabbis were debating and they were around a single verse from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy chapter chapter 24, verse 1, which said this. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Those are two phrases to hold on to. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from the house. And then it continues. But, but the debate was centered on those two phrases. What does it mean, the rabbi said, that he finds, she finds no favor in his eyes and has found some indecency in her? So that was the debate for a long, long time in Israel around the issue of divorce. What did Moses mean there is what they debated. Now, There was the majority view and the minority view. The majority view was represented by the rabbinical school of Hillel. Hillel was the rabbi that headed up this school of thought. And it interpreted that verse to mean that you could divorce your wife or your spouse for any reason. And they literally said in their writings, in the Talmud, they they literally said you could divorce your wife because she burnt a meal, or she had a bad hairstyle, or talking to other men on the street, or because she spoke disrespectfully about the in-laws. Just let that one sit for a minute. 
That was the majority view, that you could divorce your wife for any reason. They would say that's what Moses was getting at there. Later on, a rabbi, Rabbi Akiba, came along and he said this. She finds no favor in his eyes, includes the idea that if you find a more beautiful woman, you can divorce your wife and marry her. Majority view in Israel during the time. The other view was the minority view represented by Rabbi Shammai or the rabbinical school of Shammai. And it said this, you could not divorce your wife for such reasons, but you should divorce your wife in the case of adultery. To find some indecency in her was to find that she had been unfaithful. And so the Pharisees present Jesus with the majority view. Notice the one that they're kind of laying before him there. Can you divorce your wife for any reason? This is what most people are saying, Jesus. What do you say? Again, they wanted to test him. This was a big question then. This is a big question now. Jesus says in verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay, let's break down Jesus' response for a little bit. First of all, he starts off by saying to the Pharisees, haven't you read? Which was such a nice little insult from Jesus. He knows they're trying to set him up. He knows what this match is all about. And so he gives them a little jab there. Well, haven't you read when you're saying to the people that were supposed to be the teachers of Israel and the authorities and what the Bible said, and he says to them, well, haven't you read the first chapter? It was quite an awesome little insult. But more than that, what Jesus is doing there is appealing to the ultimate authority on such issues. He did not say, well, you know, Rabbi Shammai. Or he did not say, well, Rabbi, where Rabbi Hillel errs. Or he didn't say, well, this other rabbi or my opinion. He says, haven't you read? In other words, when thinking about these issues, haven't you appealed to the ultimate authority, which is God's word? That's what Jesus is doing there. He's saying, if we have questions about these things, the place that we ought to go, we're the full and final authority. The only opinion that matters is found in the word of God. That was meant to confront their thought processes. It was meant to confront the popular culture of the day. And it is meant to frame and inform and conform our thinking as God's people. The word of God, the Bible, is the final authority on issues such as these, on all issues. And it's interesting where Jesus goes in that appeal. He goes right back to the very beginning and he references Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Not only is he saying that the Bible is a full and final authority on these matters, he is also saying that these things are rooted in creation and God's intent. Therefore, it is not a matter of a trajectory of culture. It is not something that is outdated or traditional or needs to progress and become modern. Jesus says it's not an issue of finding the modern progressive 
perspective or the old traditional perspective. It is a matter of scripture, which represents God's creational intent for humanity. So Jesus has it, haven't you read? And then he quotes from Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. And we have those verses for you here. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in 2.24, it says, speaking about marriage, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That set both, both passages, but, but that second verse in particular is, is paramount in the biblical understanding of marriage. Both Jesus and Paul reference it when answering questions about marriage. Notice what Jesus does here when he pushes us back to the book of Genesis. The first thing that he brings out is that in his mind, Bible, or excuse me, marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the biblical view. The second thing that he says or points us to is this idea that a man is joined to his wife, that they become one flesh. He used the word united here in Matthew. It says join right there. Some translations say man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. The Hebrew word means be cemented together. Be cemented together. And then Jesus adds commentary to that and says, therefore, what God has put together, let no one tear apart. So Jesus says that marriage is between a man and a woman. That there is a permanence to it, a cementing together. Marriage is meant to be permanent. That it's a work that God does between two people. God is the one who joins them. They're no longer two, but they're one. God does that. Think about that the next time you're at a wedding. It's not the love between the bride and the groom that bonds them together. It's not the work of the pastor or the clergy standing there. It is the work of God bringing and joining them together. Therefore, it is a covenant relationship. A contract may exist between two people, but a covenant is between the bride and the groom and God. God is joining together. Jesus said, what God puts together, let no one tear apart. The biblical view of marriage. And so Jesus' response to the question, in essence, is no. Marriage is meant to be permanent. No divorce is his first answer. Right? The summation of his first answer was what God puts together, don't let anybody separate. No divorce is his first answer. Well, the Pharisees are unsatisfied, so they drill down. Verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't this way from the beginning. So the Pharisees go back to the text that has been debated amongst them of Deuteronomy 24. And they ask, well, okay, you're saying no divorce. Why did Moses command that you could be divorced? And Jesus corrects them. Notice the language. They said, why did Moses command? That was their interpretation of this passage. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. You've already misinterpreted it. 
Moses didn't command divorce. Moses was permitting divorce. And then he takes them right back to Genesis. He says, but it wasn't that way from the beginning. In other words, that's not the idea of creation and that's not the intent of God. He keeps pushing them back to the word of God and back to Genesis, letting scripture interpret scripture. Takes them right back there. And then he tells them the reason why Moses permitted this in the law. Because of the hardness of our hearts. It wasn't that God instituted marriage in Genesis 2 and then instituted divorce in Deuteronomy 24. God never instituted divorce. He only ever instituted marriage. But humanity began to practice divorce. So when the law was given, God through Moses was putting some parameters around the practice. A merciful thing to do. And he was also putting some protection around the woman who had very few rights of any during that time. And when she was just sent away in divorce, she she had no recourse for income or protection or anything. So the certificate of divorce afforded her some cultural, legal, and societal recourse for protection and provision. So that's what God's law is doing there, putting some parameters and some protection around what people were doing because their hearts were hard and they weren't recognizing original intent what God had said and meant in the book of Genesis. So this passage is a concession, not a command. Jesus says Moses permitted because of the hardness of our hearts. And then Jesus goes on to give the correct interpretation of the passage that was debated by the rabbinical schools in the next verse. In verse 9, he clarifies it for us. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus here provides an exception to what he previously said in answering the question. His first answer was, what God put together, no one should separate. No divorce. And then he reasserts it with a singular exception, except in the case of sexual immorality. So we, of course, want to define sexual immorality, and we would like to define it broadly. And to be honest, the word in Greek can't be defined broadly. The word in Greek is porneia, and it represents all sorts of sexual immorality and sexual acts but most scholars would agree that what it means in this context is adultery. Jesus is saying, except in the case of adultery, shouldn't get divorced. Jesus provides an exception there. And it's the only exception that Jesus ever provides us with. The Apostle Paul gave us one more when addressing these issues in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where he talks about if a non-believing spouse wants to leave a believer and refuses to stay, then that person is free from that covenant. But if the husband or wife isn't a believer, who isn't a believer and insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. So those are the only two exceptions given to us in Scripture. Jesus says no to divorce. It's not an option. That's not intent. That's not creation. But here are two exceptions. In the case of adultery 
and the unbelieving spouse who will not stay. What this means, what, what, what they had to hear, right, for the majority view in Israel, what we need to hear for the view in our culture is that Jesus in Scripture rejects the vast majority of reasons for divorce today. Incompatibility, irreconcilable differences, financial problems, life trauma, falling out of love, etc., etc. None of those are allowed in Scripture as reasons for divorce. Divorce is permissible only in the case of adultery on the part of one of the spouses or abandonment by a non-believer. It gets a little tougher. Very importantly, what Jesus doesn't do here is just wholesale outright side with the minority view. The minority view was, of Deuteronomy 24.1, the minority view was you should get divorced in the case of adultery, right? That was a rabbinical school of Shammai. It seems as though Jesus is agreeing with the minority view, but he's not. Whereas they required divorce for adultery, notice the language there, Jesus only allows it for adultery. It's a concession, not a command. He didn't say that if their spouse commits adultery, you need to or you must or you ought to get divorced. He says, you may. It's a concession, not a command. Why is that important? Because Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. He's leaving the door open for forgiveness and reconciliation and the power of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God. He leaves the door open for marriages to be saved and salvaged even in the worst of betrayals, in the deepest of pain, in the most horrific of things. Jesus stands as the one who always has hope in the power of his own cross and the working of the Spirit and the power of forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. Remember, all of this was was framed in the cross and the kingdom and the healing that comes in the kingdom. Jesus is also teaching us that there's a new kingdom and there's a new power and there's new hope. He leaves the door open for that. Jesus always calls us to walk through the door of forgiveness and reconciliation wherever possible. Therefore, in his love, he doesn't say that adultery automatically means divorce, but in his compassion, there is that concession, knowing the pain that that entails. But the goal in God's mind is always forgiveness and reconciliation where possible. So then we want to ask the question, what about when reconciliation doesn't happen after divorce? For whatever reason, somebody gets divorced. And we ought to ask the question, can a Christian get remarried then? Let me say, first of all, that this can become complicated, that this is debated, and that this is sensitive. I know this represents many of us in this room. So what about remarriage? Can a Christian be remarried after divorce? The answer is yes in the right circumstances. The answer is yes in the right circumstances. Circumstances. The 
exception clause given by Jesus, except in the case of sexual immorality or adultery. The exception clause given by him applies to both divorce and remarriage. It is the validity of the divorce, biblically, that establishes eligibility for remarriage, biblically. The key principle is if divorce occurs on biblical ground, then the innocent party is free to remarry. If the divorce occurs on biblical grounds, abandonment by a non-believer or adultery, then the innocent party is free to remarry. So everyone in their minds right now is saying, well, what about the guilty party? Jesus doesn't address that in this passage. There is perhaps some ambiguity there. Paul does give us a little bit of a parallel idea in 1 Corinthians 7, again, when he's talking about these things, where he says, but for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. And the same would be true of him. So Paul would say, if someone chooses to leave, therefore they, in that scenario becomes the guilty party. Their two options are to be reconciled in that marriage or to remain single. That's what Paul says. Maybe that is also the intent of Jesus in the case of adultery. I think it would seem to suggest that. That at that point, the guilty party either remains single or is reconciled. So Jesus says marriage is permanent. Divorce is not the plan. There are two exceptions, but reconciliation is always the hope. And there is the hope for remarriage in those instances. Now, I realize, as we all do, that this is a very high standard. It's a high view of marriage, and it's a high view of Scripture. It was so high, in fact, that even the disciples, who had been with Jesus for a long time, were kind of tripping on it. Right? Look what they say in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if this is a situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus says in verse 11, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. What he isn't saying there is, well, you pick or choose if you want to believe me, the Bible. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, yeah, well, marriage is a gift and it actually is a really high calling and it is kind of a big deal and it is meant to be permanent and that will be a great challenge. So not everyone should get married. That's what he says right there, which kind of grates against our, 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 our popular Christian culture because we, wrongly, I will say in a moment, have held marriage up as sort of the ultimate Christian experience and it's not. The disciples say, whoa, this is too high of a view. And Jesus says, yeah, some of you can't handle it. You shouldn't get married. So how, how, should, how should we handle that? First of all, I just want to say again, because I'm, I don't know, I feel the heat, though it's not hot in here. <laughs> I know for some of you this is very close, but I must say again that all of us have been affected. None of us lives and the perfect ideal of what God intended for a family. All of us experience brokenness. We are all in this boat 
together. I know some of you feel singled out. That is not God's goal. That is not my goal. All of us together as people and as a community and as a church are touched by this brokenness. That's why it was framed in the love of God on the cross where he paid the price for every sin and gave us the hope and the promise of new life and the healing of the kingdom and the sense of discipleship, following Jesus even in our messiness. Some of you... as Christians, have had unbiblical divorces and unbiblical marriages. Remarriages then, excuse me. So you're asking the, the, the good question, okay, well, what do I do about that? Three points. Number one, you must realize, first of all, that neither of those is the unforgivable sin. Neither of those is the unforgivable sin. We have often as the church, I mean the church with a capital C worldwide throughout history, in some way, made divorced, remarried, single people feel like second-class citizens in the church, and that is wrong. And as a representative of the church, I am sorry for that. There is no way in which divorce or remarriage, either of them being unbiblical, makes you a second-class Christian. But he who is without sin throw the first stone. We're all broken in these things. Neither of those is unforgivable. Remember, it's framed in the cross. If you had an unbiblical divorce or an unbiblical remarriage, you go to Jesus, you acknowledge his truth, and you ask for his grace, and you have it. Forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our, confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So make sure today that you experience God's forgiveness in those things if you need it. Through confession. Now repentance gets a little tricky with that issue. Because we might think, well, okay, I I had an unbiblical divorce, so then I had an unbiblical remarriage as a Christian, so now then should I break up that one and go be reconciled to the first person I was married to? The answer is no. It's point number two. Two wrongs won't make a right here. That's not the way that that works. Don't try to reverse it. So the third point helps us then. Recognize and commit to living out God's plan for marriage now. New start. That's what we all get in Jesus. We all get a new start. That's what the cross is all about. We all get a new start. So go to Jesus, go to the cross for forgiveness and go there for healing. Recognize and rejoice in God's truth. Realize that we've all lived in dissonance with God's truth in many ways. And as a follower of Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit, endeavor to live in harmony with God's truth as you go forward. I think we must also say then, in light of the cross, and this idea of forgiveness and reconciliation, that we shouldn't then give up on our marriages. We shouldn't then give up on our marriages. You know, marriage is, is, is meant to be ultimately a picture of the relationship of Christ and the church. Christ is the groom, the church is the bride. 
Jesus never gives up on the church. We are not Jesus, we are imperfect. But the work of the cross and forgiveness and reconciliation with the help of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's holy word, we can fight maybe. Harder than we think we can or harder than we've been willing to. We can fight for our marriages. Don't underestimate the power of the cross. Don't underestimate the power of God's spirit and what forgiveness and reconciliation can do. Good marriages are not marriages that are without problems. There are none of those. They are marriages that are dependent upon the grace that God provides and the covenant that he has made. There are marriages that are constantly renewed in God's grace, and we all need God's grace. And I, I would also then just remind us that in light of the, the fact that this is all framed in the cross, that the cross is also the greatest picture of self-sacrificial love. I think the problem with a lot of our perspectives, as it was in the culture then, is we're not working at it from self-sacrificial love. We're working at it from self-fulfillment and our needs. And if that's the goal in marriage, that's going to be a, a difficult road. Jesus here, I think, is telling us in the shadow of the cross that, man, this is going to require self-sacrificial love. And, and Jesus' work on the cross is a picture of that. And then I'll just say to our to the Christian Community Church, capital C, that I, I think when it comes to, I'll say to the whole culture that when it comes to the Bible and marriage, our view has been too low. That, that if we can do anything at this point, we can reassert and recapture the ultimate authority of the word of God and the holiness and the sanctity and the beauty of the covenant of marriage. And we can, as God's people, recommit ourselves to those things. Perhaps our view of Scripture and of marriage have been too low. Now, transitioning, and I'm doing wonderfully on time. Marriage is not for everyone. Jesus said that. And some are actually meant to be single. And Jesus says that in the text, right? In verse 10, they say, gosh, if this is a situation, then maybe it's better not to marry. Jesus says in verse 11, not everyone can accept this word, but only those for whom it has been given. And then he's going to mention eunuchs here. And for our help, when you hear the word eunuch, hear single person. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So some people need to accept the marriage thing. Some people need to accept the single thing. Uh, He uses the word eunuch there. Technically, to be a eunuch was to not have sexual organs. They were single in that culture. And he says some were born that way. That happens. Some were made that way. That used to happen. When someone was enlisted to serve in a royal court and they were meant to watch over the women of the court and they were a male, they were then castrated so there was no danger about their intentions with those women and they could protect them unfettered from lust. Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8. It's an example of someone in that situation. But lastly, Jesus says, very importantly for us, There are those who are eunuchs because they choose to live that way for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
That's what he said there. Those who choose to live as singles for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to notice what Jesus does here in one paragraph, in one interaction, in the shadow of the cross, appealing to the word of God as authority. Jesus is affirming both the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of singleness. I think often in our Christian culture, we have elevated marriage to this ultimate Christian expression of what it is to be a Christian. That's not true. I will remind you that both Paul and Jesus were single. Jesus is affirming in this text both the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of singleness. Therefore, we must see from Scripture that singleness is not a curse. Singleness is a gift. And I know, because I talk to a lot of single people. I'm not one. I don't have that gift. I know that sometimes it can feel like a curse. I understand those difficulties. But that's not what the Scriptures say. It's a gift and not a curse. Look what Paul said again in that enlightening chapter, which I'm sure you'll read when you go home, 1 Corinthians 7. He says, look what he says here. Paul says, I wish everyone were single like me. Yet each person has a special gift from God, one kind or another. Notice that he says, like Jesus, this marriage thing is a gift and this singleness thing is a gift. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried just as I am. Did you hear that? Now, Many of you love this one. But if you can't control them, if, we'll say you, if you can't control yourself, then go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Many of you say, ah, that's the one. <laughs> and many marriages have been built on that. But Paul's point here is that singleness is a gift from God. And he goes on to say later in the chapter that it's strategic for God's purposes. Paul says, I wish everyone were single like me because I have greater opportunity for effective mission. I won't say the word for effective, for broader mission in the world. He says toward the closing of the chapter, listen, if you're married, you're very concerned about your spouse and what they need, and rightly so. But if you're not, then you can serve Jesus without all that other stuff. Scripture celebrates that, affirms it, says it's a beautiful, strategic thing in God's kingdom. Therefore, I want to say, singleness is not about what one lacks, but about what one has been given. It's a gift now. And I know that it makes the future seem hard for some people that feel like their singleness is a curse. But look what God says he will do for singles in the future. Isaiah Don't let the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be part of his people. And don't let the eunuchs say, I'm dried up. I'm like a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy and who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could ever give. For the name I give them is an everlasting love. It will never disappear. So God's word has told us in just six verses that singleness is holy. It's a gift from God. It's strategic from God. And it is ultimately blessed by God in a way that he says is even better than the heritage of having sons and daughters. Then we also have to realize in our, our, our singleness 
that our ultimate status is not single or married. I know you need to check that on like your tax returns and stuff, but our ultimate status is our identity in Christ. We're all defined by our identity in Christ. And in Christ, we all have a true family. Jesus said that this family trumps every other family. He said, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters? Those who obey my word, he said. Right, Jesus said, look, if anyone loves their mother or father more than me, they're not even worthy of me. Jesus said that this family trumps every other family. That's why this family is so incredibly important. That's why there's always a call to do better and go higher in Christian community because this is the true and ultimate family of God under Christ. This is true, these things for widows and widowers, divorcees, single moms, yet to be married, wherever you find yourself in the body of Christ, according to the Bible, you are welcomed, celebrated, valued, and strategic. So Jesus talked about marriage, talked about divorce, remarriage, and singleness. It's only natural that he finishes with kids. So he says on kids, and this will be very brief. Verse 13, then the people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he placed his hands on them, which meant he blessed them, he laid his hands on them and blessed them like we did with John and Alma this morning. When he laid his hands on them, he went on from there. So this is not a text about raising kids. It is a text about the value of kids. And the disciples surprisingly missed it. Right, the kids were coming to Jesus and the disciples said to the parents, quit bringing your kids to Jesus. Quit bugging Jesus with your kids. You're slowing down the mission here, lady. <laughs> and Jesus rebukes them. This is about the value of children. And it's the cultural question, are children a blessing or a burden? And perhaps surprisingly, our culture seems to see children increasingly as a burden. The birth rate in America hit its lowest point in history last year. Less people in our culture are having kids than ever before. We're having half as many kids as we were in 1960. So you'd have to argue that in our culture, children and childbearing is less valued than it was previously. Now, I will also say there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong, with not having kids or waiting longer. The question is, and what the text brings out, is what is the motivation for it? The disciples kind of saw it this way, and I think sometimes we see it this way. We see children as holding us back from bigger and better things. I don't want to have kids. I want to build my career. I don't want to have kids. I want to make a fortune. I don't want to have kids. I got to get established. I don't want to have kids. I want to have fun, and I want to be free. And then maybe when I'm fun and I'm free and I'm rich and I'm famous, I'll have a couple. Okay. Jesus just reminds us here that kids are not a burden. Kids are a blessing. And it says explicitly in Psalm 127, verse 3, that children are a gift from the Lord. The disciples misunderstood. They thought the kids were getting in the way of the mission. Jesus said they exemplify the mission. 
Now, anyone who has some kids realizes that kids can feel like a burden, like there's a lot of work. But they're not a burden, they're a blessing. Here's why. My, my kids, as I speak for myself, are, are not in their demands depriving me from anything. They are reminding me of the most important things. Self-sacrificial love, service, ultimate giving, surrender discipleship. They're not depriving me of anything. They are, through the work of God, teaching me about the most important things. And in light of this text, Jesus' teaching on kids should inform how we view then kids in our family. Maybe a reset button for the way we've been viewing our kids. I have a three-year-old. I know how like whatever that can be. (laughs) Should also reassess how we view kids in community and in the church. Thank you, God, for VBS happening in our church this week. Thank you for our incredible kids' church, kids' ministry here. So thankful for them and all of you who serve there and teach kids and love kids and protect kids and disciple kids. That should be a really big deal of ours within the Christian community and within the church. We shouldn't be like the disciples who said, well, let's just push them aside. They're kind of bogging down the real stuff, the mission. Jesus said, nah, this is a mission, man. So we should... Reflect that as a church. And it should also affect how we view children in danger. Unborn children. Children in need of adoption. Foster care. How we think about trafficking, etc. So, when we look at our lives, none of our stories match up to the perfect will and intent of God in creation. We are all subsequent messes. And we are all radically loved by God. We are all in need of God's forgiveness. We are all in need of God's grace. We are all in need of God's healing. And we all together have to pursue God's truth as we follow Jesus. So any way that this touches you today, cognitively come to the cross of Christ where we discover grace forgiveness, and healing. We can do that in a very expressive way by sharing in the Lord's Supper today. You know, the Bible tells us that in the end, there's going to be something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb, where the bride, the church, finally is united with the groom, Jesus, and there's a party. Marriage supper of the Lamb. And Paul said, that this, Jesus and Paul said that what we do now as a church together and taking communion together is representative of, a hors d'oeuvre of that marriage supper. Jesus said, I'm going to do this again in the kingdom anew with you. And Paul said, every time that we do this, we do it in proclaiming his death until he comes. Then, all marriage stuff, all messy stuff, all our mistakes with our kids, all of our single angst, all of our lust, all of that stuff will be consumed in the great renewal of all things in God's love through Christ and the power of his cross when he makes all creation new. And we celebrate that as we come to communion. And my golly, if you need prayer today, get prayer today. The prayer team will be up here. Maybe your marriage is on the edge. You need prayer. Maybe you're having a hard time in your marriage feels like a ball and chain. Maybe you're having a hard time in your singleness. feels like a curse. 
Come get prayer today. That's not God's will for you. Maybe you need to forgive someone or forgive yourself or you need help in prayer. Let's do these things. Lord, we thank you for the incredible grace brought to us in Christ. And we are fully aware of our need of that grace. And we are thankful that in Christ, grace abounds. Help us this morning, Holy Spirit, to lay hold of the grace that is found from God in Christ. Thank you that as we worship you now, the way to the throne room is wide open. You said come boldly into the throne room where we may receive help in the time of need. Thank you for the healing that we have experienced already in our lives. Thank you that we lay hold of the fact that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank you for the joy of being new creations. Thank you for the forgiveness you'll extend today and the renewal and the restoration and the power and the love and the mercy and the healing we'll experience in your presence. Help us, Holy Spirit, to press into all that's available to us in Christ.